I'm not sure there's a lot less code being written in C. The less specified a language is, the more room there is to optimize it. There's this desire to want it all. But when push comes to shove, performance has been winning out over security in terms of the decisions that are being made. There's a lot of reasons to try to code securely to begin with. Fixing defects later in the development cycle, it's more likely that you'll fix it incorrectly or introduce additional defects while you're repairing an existing problem. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. It is a part of the Secure Developer community. Check out thesecuredeveloper.com for great talks and content about developer security and to ask questions and share your knowledge. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Uh, thanks for joining in for another episode. Today we have a great security trainer with us, Robert Secord. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks for having me. So Robert, before we dig in, we're going to go a little bit more sort of a bare metal here, or maybe like a little bit more sort of C, C++ programming security and the likes later in the show. Can you give us a little bit of context about yourself, You know, who you are, how you got into security, what do you do these days? Sure. These days I'm a technical director at NCC Group and sort of split my time between doing secure coding training, uh, developing secure coding training, research and customer work, doing a lot of uh, security code analysis for various customers, you know, reviewing source code and the like. How I got into security, I was uh, I started as a developer for IBM back in 84 and I had a startup company in 91. I worked for a company called Secureware down in Atlanta, Georgia and did not do any security work for them whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> continued on my career, went back to the SEI in 1996. And then in 2003, I just sort of changed tracks completely and went from working in component-based software engineering, and I moved over into the CERT team, originally on the VOL handling team. And you can find, uh, I guess, one or two VOLs that I actually handled then I uh, didn't get a lot of direction while I was there, so I, I wandered off and started writing some books. <laughs> so I wound up writing uh, Secure Coding in C and C++ and really liked the security field because it gave me the opportunity to um, get very lost in the weeds of things and not just have to deliver functionality on a schedule and sort of move on to the next project. So Yeah, more about security as quality. Mm. Would you identify first and foremost as a developer or more as a security person? I'm kind of these days right at the intersection of those two things. So that's kind of my sweet spot because, you know, as a security person, I'm not the best. And, you know, as far as people who are experts at C language, I'm not the best. I mean, most rooms I walk into, I am. But, you know, when you walk into the C standards meeting, you know, I'm the dumb guy. Uh, <laughs> the joy of being broad in your sort of specialties, you know, you you have to internalize a lot of things. You can't just sort of focus in on one thing. But let's dig into kind of the the meat of your sort of training curriculum these days. You know, you've written a lot and spoken a lot about sort of secure C coding and the likes. You know, at the risk of like condensing a world of knowledge into uh, a few uh, highlights, what what would you say are the, the primary emphases that you give? You know. At, at, development in today when you come in and try to give them like the core principles of secure development and maybe like how much if at all do you feel like that has changed over time? 
Well, you know, I, I think that the devil tends to be in the details, you know, so rather than sort of superficially perform a treatment of a variety of topics, I tend to dive deep, you know, so, you know, most notably the second day of my secure coding and CNC++ training, I tend to talk about integers. And so, you know, six hours seems like a long time to talk about integers, but turns out they're, you know, very misunderstood. And, you know, the reality of C programming and C++ programming is, you know, buffer overflows are, are sort of the biggest issue, both writing outside the bounds of objects and, and reading outside the bounds of objects. And the way you do that is you add, a, you know, a pointer to an integer and then start, you know, dereferencing memory at that address. And if you don't know what value is stored in that integer, you really don't know what that eventual pointer is referencing. So you can't have any assurance or confidence that that's not an out-of-bounds read or write. And how, uh, I guess, like the statement, I guess, would have been true 20 years ago, 30 years ago as well, right? You know, like this is the, uh, the mistake for it. Do you see, like the systems have slightly changed, right? Like if nothing else, like a lot of systems that used to be written in C++ are now written in uh, in other languages, right? Like, you know, like might be written in a Java or C Sharp or sort of higher level languages where they don't deal with those pointers. Yeah. Do you feel that or, or, or am I just being a little bit, you know, biased, I guess, and uh, everybody lives in their world. You know, I, I'm not sure there's a lot less code being written in C. There was kind of a point at which Java was being explored for the desktop, and eventually I think it was sort of abandoned as as having adequate performance for, for desktop applications. Now it feels like it's largely relegated to, uh, you know, running server-side software. And plus, you know, there's just a world of embedded software you know, uh, cars, uh, all sorts of transportation are all, you know, written in, in C. Yeah. You know, I've kind of followed the Tiobe index over the years, which kind of talks about language popularity. And it used to be Java, C, and C++ are all there with 20 plus percent of the market. But uh, what's happened is that usage has balkanized. So there's more and more different languages, each with sort of less percentage of the market. But at the top is still Java and C. And C++ has actually dropped off a bit. It's now, last time I looked, I think, in the fourth position. Yeah, yeah. I think there's actually some reason to that, right? Because from a programming perspective, it might be that C++ was a, a path towards more sort of structure, uh, maybe a little bit less sort of low-level control. But basically, that that is now some of that is being taken up by the other languages, right? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I think to a certain extent, some C++ people went to Java, the people who wanted the abstractions and the people who were keen on performance and small footprint, all that stuff moved more to C and sort of vacated the C++ space a bit. So it's an interesting observation, right? And sort of important indeed to, to remember, I guess, that like the volume of developers as a whole also has increased, right? So like C++ is, uh, you know, C developers uh, are probably continuing to grow as well. And indeed, in all those... Uh, brave new embedded worlds. How much are you feeling, and in the context of security, maybe dealing with agile development? Like, do you feel like in those contexts, is the world of C development a little bit less sort of agile or sort of driven for these bi-weekly shipments, or is it getting the same type of pressures? Yeah, I, I don't see C being driven so much by agile development as maybe, you know, sort of website development and, and projects like that. You know, agile projects I've been involved with tend to 
have a lot of problems with security. I mean, it doesn't typically seem to fit into the model of quick release cycles. You know, there's always this sort of short-term push to push functionality out to deploy. And secure coding, a lot of times, is the antithesis of that. You know, it's a focus on, you know, gaining assurance in the, you know, the code, the functionality you're about to deploy. And some people I've seen even have trouble sort of expressing security in terms of a backlog that they can even address as part of their, you know, release cycle. So there's probably things people are doing to make it more appropriate for uh, security, but to a certain extent, I feel it's not really built into the model. But then again, you know, who knows? It's, I think when you go out and you look at real companies and what they're doing in terms of security processes, it's just always alarmingly much worse than you can imagine, right? I mean, you'll, you'll see companies who don't have configuration management in place. <laughs> I mean, uh, real, real basic things like that. Yeah, no, I understand. So I think we're, we're basically, it's just these, these different worlds, right? Like in a website development environment, you might be sort of pushed for faster sort of iteration. Languages might be higher level, you know, maybe a bit more, more agile. You know, I think we're sort of discussing a slightly different world, which is like you mentioned embedded systems, you know, life is connected cars, quality and assurance is much more important. You can't iterate quite as much. You can't ship a new car every two weeks like you need to. Uh, uh, and even the update mechanisms are a little bit more controlled there. But also the written in languages where more damage can be caused, you know, so you have maybe a slightly higher responsibility to invest in that assurance, I guess, you know, for everyone. Yeah. I mean, when I was at CERT, you know, we kept track of vulnerabilities, but we didn't deal with all of them. So we focused on the more critical ones that, you know, would affect things like critical infrastructure. And as a result of that, you know, two thirds of the vulnerabilities we found in the CERT database were related to C and C++ code. And again, that's because we focused on critical infrastructure. We didn't focus on, you know, mom and pop websites, in which case, you know, it would have been all PHP and, you know, cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Again, kind of just sort of different, super high gravity uh, type surroundings, maybe ones where, where that sort of balance between agility and safety can be taken a little bit differently. Yep. So, you know, you do a lot of this assessment now and reviewing, maybe sort of share some uh, some bits of what works well for you. So like, what's, uh, if I can start by like, you know, what are your favorite reviewing tools when you do sort of analysis of a CIS code base? Yeah, I guess the most surprising thing to me is people tend not to use the tools in front of them. You know, I would say starting with the compiler, you know, so we'll talk to organizations that, you know, are talking about buying Coverity or buying Fortify or some other high-end analysis tool, but, you know, they haven't set their warning level on their compiler or, you know, they're disabling warnings. So they're not seeing sort of critical problems. My favorite warning is the, um, you know, sign to unsigned conversion warning that developers like to turn off and it turns out that you know that's a really bad idea and and many of those warnings are are you know identifying real problems and potential you know vulnerabilities in the code so I, you know i would say just start by using your compilers better you know and clang and gcc now have a bunch of dynamic analysis tools integrated you know with the compilers uh, so you know there's address sanitizer and mem sanitizer and UB sanitizer and one for thread sanitizer for analyzing parallel execution and all those tools along with the you know static analysis capabilities of the compilers is very effective. And how do you know when to 
be happy with your results. Like, you know, you come across, you look at these, these are like complicated beasts, right? And you run the review. How do you feel like you've explored the unknown sufficiently to, uh, to feel like it's, it's ready to go? Yeah. You know, it's almost about defect detection rates, right? So, you know, how many, how many defects are you finding per, you know, day or per hour of analysis, right? So once that rate declines to a certain point, you get sort of past the point of, you know, where you're getting a good return from that. And usually at that point, it's a good idea to change strategies because a lot of times, once you go to a different tool, a different approach, suddenly you start to find new classes of defects that you weren't finding with the old approach. And so, you know, typically you do what you can until you run out of time. (laughs) Yeah, until reality hits you. Yep. You know, but usually an indicator that you're getting there is sort of when you're not finding things as quickly when you get to a diminishing, you know, return point. I assume like in some of these systems, you know, you have some form of continuous build, right? Like you have some form of automated builds that happen. How do you, how do you like to sort of set standards, right? To sort of know you haven't slipped almost the regression test aspect of security. Do you feel like there are good tools around that? Does it come back again to the compiler warnings and disallowing them? For regression tests? Basically to know, like you've done, you've set down, you know, somebody hired, you know, the top talent, right? Of Robert Secord, you've gone through, you've done an analysis to sort of help them get to a point that is of a higher comfort. Now they don't want to slip, right? They don't want to regress. So I guess regression tests in terms of yeah. of security quality, you know, do you, do you set some lines and thresholds? Right. For example, you know, NCC Group would do a security analysis of a system, including analyzing the source code. And, you know, we'll write a report and, you know, we'll identify the defects and we'll explain, you know, what the problem is, what uh, possible mitigations are and so forth. And that gets moved around, right? But a lot of times it makes sense to follow that up with some on-site training, right, where we'll come in and talk to the developers and give them the training course and maybe supplement that with some examples from their their own system, you know, actual mistakes that, that they made and, you know, try to up their game on a whole, right? Because I think what you don't want to do is always rely on the pen testers to find the problems in the code, yeah. right? I mean, because it's not necessarily the best approach. You really want to not code the errors to begin with, right? Because that's the most effective time to you know, code correctly and securely is while you're writing the code. Anytime you come back to something, you know, a lot of times you're looking at someone else's code. So you have to relearn that. You have to learn that person's code. Sometimes you're looking at your own code, but often you have to relearn your own code because enough time has passed that you're not really familiar with it. So fixing defects later in the development cycle, it's more likely that you'll fix it incorrectly or introduce additional defects while you're repairing an existing problem. So Again, there's a, there's a lot of reasons to try to code securely to begin with. I'm going to switch a little bit gears here and maybe talk about people. You know, indeed, talk about these dev teams from a, from a team composition. You know, we talk tech. You know, let's talk a little bit about the, the teams that you teach, right? So like when you're coming in to do more, more of a training or when you interact even with teams to sort of share the results, do you feel like there's any change like over the last the last while, right? You've been doing this for, for a good many years. 
Do you feel like approaches are different? Like, is there a higher awareness or appreciation for security? Is it about the same? Do you get pushback around, like, it's not my job from dev teams? How do you see the state of the industry amongst the sort of the customer base you work with? Yeah, uh, well, I, I would say that there are some changes. Uh, you know, we don't really get the same type of arguments that we got into years ago where, you know, we'd call a vendor and say, you have a vulnerability in your code, and they would say, prove it, you know. You know, nowadays they're more willing to accept that on face value. Mm -hmm. You know, so from a teaching perspective, you know, I mentioned this in the intro, but I started out as a developer. So I've always maintained a developer focus. So, you know, I've had security people come and try to train me uh, unsuccessfully because <laughs> they would say really stupid things that were just unpractical things that we would never do, could never do. And a lot of security people tend to be very dogmatic in their approach without having any kind of firm basis for it. And and so, you know, when I do teach, I'll I'll tell students that, you know, security is a quality that you have to achieve. And people sometimes ask me, you know, why do people break C as a programming language? Right? And, you know, one of my answers is that, you know, typically security might be fourth or fifth on your list of reasons you pick a language, right? So the first reason would be, mm -hmm. you know, hey, we've got existing software, so we developed for this platform, and it's in C or it's in C++ or what have you. And, you know, there's an advantage to keeping your code base in the same language. I've had conversations recently about uh, sort of Frankenstein systems, right, where they started in C, and then someone switched to uh, Java, and then C Sharp, and then Rust, and then Go, and and then you have 12 or 15 or 20 different languages. And those systems become very brittle and very difficult to maintain. So that's the first reason. The, the second reason might be that that's where your expertise is, right? So if you have a group of expert C developers, and you tell them to build the next system in Java, you know, I can guarantee that system will be less secure than the system those developers would have built in the C language. Yeah. And then you get to, you know, things like performance and, you know, eventually security might be fourth or fifth, you know, on the list of reasons you would pick a given language. And I think you're right. And I think fundamentally the, the choice of language is attuned to what you're trying to do. Like if you built an embedded system in Java, maybe there are some explicit cases where that may make sense. But more often than not, that's just not as performant or it's too resource consumption heavy to fly and security has to cope you know like you have to uh you have to build a secure despite the choice of language whether that's a helpful or a negative thing for you yeah i mean and a lot of security advice tends to be you know again overly dogmatic and just saying something as simple as always check you know bounds is sort of overly prescriptive because you can look at many loops in c and c plus plus code and just prove that they don't have uh, out of bounds read or write so you know, why waste cycles securing something where there's no possibility of a defect or error when you can use those cycles elsewhere to provide uh, real security? Yeah. And, you know, performance and security always tends to be a trade-off to some extent. So I think uh, I think we're describing kind of an interesting profile here, which is a little bit different than a bunch of the maybe example systems that we oftentimes have on the show, right? We're talking about these maybe embedded systems, sort of low-level systems, performances of material of sort of a very high importance, maybe oftentimes a physical thing that gets shipped or, or something that doesn't get delivered or sort of deployed quite as often. And therefore, between the sensitivity and the and maybe just the, the form factor, they end up doing security in a slightly more, you know, maybe thorough fashion. How do you feel the engagement? I mean you, you come in, people contract NCC group or you know they work with you 
Do you feel like before they would bring you in at the end of the process, now they bring you in more midway? Like, has there been a change around when that type of security process is done? I mean, I understand that the deployment, that it's less agile, but do you find it still, is it still waterfalling? Do you come in after six months of code have been written or is it more collaborative? Yeah, you know, it's it's a bit hard to say. So, so we certainly get engaged at all points in the life cycle, right? And, you know, a good time, I think, to engage us is to engage us early with the training. And a lot of times during the beginning of a project, you have, you know, a small group of architects and designers who are coming up with the initial architect and design. And you have a lot of developers who aren't fully engaged at that point in the process because they're more novice programmers and not fully engaged in the design process. And so that's a good time to, you know, deliver some secure coding training, get those folks up to speed when they're not necessarily fully engaged yet in the development process. You know, we do get asked to do, you know, architecture design reviews. You know, those are always worthwhile endeavors. But there are still a lot of companies that bring us in for pen testing, expect the pen testing to go great, are, you know, shocked and dismayed by the results of the pen test, and then decide, you know, to bring us in. I would say even more commonly is just sort of the, you know, some big exploit gets discovered or published, and then, you know, the alarm bells go off and and organizations decide, you know, we've got to more proactively address security. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true at all levels. <laughs> you know, all levels of seniority and all levels of the stack. Right. You know, it's, uh, security is invisible. And so when something big happens to sort of act as this big hit in that feedback loop, it mobilizes people to action. So I think, you know, this was, I think, a really interesting conversation because I feel, on one hand, the reality describing kind of a lot of these principles are the same as they would be in any language. Like this notion of like, People that at the earlier stage of their career, they need more of the secure training and education element of it, while people that are further along, you know, might be a bit more like looking for you for for subsequent verification, right? But not quite as they go. Even a lot of the commentary about teaching in, in, in the specific examples change, right? That whether it's out of bounds versus cross-site scripting, you know, or sort of knowing sanitize inputs and outputs, fundamentally the idea of teaching a principle versus teaching a specific, I think kind of holds as well and, and runs with it. Maybe the biggest change I think that, that runs over here is the trade-offs you know, and the specifics, mm. as well as the pace maybe that this world works, like this, this risk tolerance around the likelihood of a problem and maybe the tolerance for, for slightly slower paces. Yeah, when I think about you know the training, because I've been delivering secure coding and CNC++ training since probably 2005, so some time now, and you know the problems don't change very much, right? They sort of remain there in the languages, and particularly C, there's a very strong reluctance to change the language. Right, the kind of the first rule in the standards committee is don't break existing code. They're they're okay breaking uh, compiler implementations, but they don't want to break existing source code that's out there because the saying is, you know, the world runs on C, and we don't want to break the world. And, you know, you'll find that there are code bases out there where there really aren't maintainers left for that code, right? So they'll update a compiler and rebuild it with the latest version of the compiler. And if something goes wrong, they're kind of out of luck now. They don't know how to to repair that code anymore. So I think the thing that probably changes the most are the solutions, right? So there's different and better tooling that comes along. 
different and better processes. And sometimes, you know, there are newer libraries which are introduced, which are, you know, potentially more usable and, you know, more more secure. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's a, a good thing to hear, right? You know, I think the ecosystem, the surrounding evolves while indeed, I guess, the sort of a cornerstone of software development that is C <laughs> uh, remains, you know, a little bit a little bit unchanged, you know, for I guess you can say for historical reasons, but also because it's pretty, it's pretty darn powerful. You know, it's not. Uh, it allows you to do a lot of things, including to yourself in the foot. But you know, it lets you do a lot of good things as well. Yeah, and you know, the time I've been involved in C standardization, uh, I would say that it's really still driven by performance more than security. And so, you know, we have these undefined behaviors in the language, which. The less specified a language is, the more room there is to optimize it. You know, and so the you know the simple view of that is, if you have to go from point A to point C, but you have to stop at point B on the way, and you try to optimize your route, that constraint of stopping at point B is going to uh, limit your optimizations. You know, your your ability to optimize the route. But if you can eliminate sort of the necessity to stop at point B, you can come up with much faster routes to your final destination. And so, you know, one of the things that's been going on in the evolution of C is that compiler writers are sort of taking advantage of these undefined behaviors to do sort of greater and greater optimizations. And there's kind of weird pushback on uh, by the C community, right? So the C community will physically show up at standards meetings, you know, representatives, and they'll say, you know, well, we're, we've had it up to here with these optimizations. You know, we've written this code. This code's always worked. You know what it means. You know, you've always known what this code meant, but now you're doing these optimizations and our code is broken now and, you know, cut it out. And so the compiler writers will say, well, okay, so you can do without these optimizations. And then the C developers will say, well, no, we want those optimizations. And then the compiler writers will sort of throw their their arms up in may potentially mock disbelief. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, so there's this desire to want it all. And it's not necessarily feasible. But when push comes to shove, performance has been sort of winning out over security in terms of the decisions that are being made. Yeah, it's an aspect of the functionality, right? You know, you can be secure all the way to bankruptcy. I mean, at the end of the day, the business value is what dominates and security is invisible, right? You know, it's something that you have to work to make visible. So, Robert, thanks for, for sort of the good guidance here and sort of all this uh, sharing your experience as, uh, as we went through the show. Before I let you go, I like to ask every, every guest on the show, you know, if there's one, one sort of tip, right, or one bit of advice when you have, you know, a team, you know, a team of C developers, you know, looking to level up their security knowledge, you know, what's kind of the one small piece of advice or, or sort of just pet peeve, I think you get annoyed, you know, with sort of people repeatedly uh, getting wrong, did you give that team uh, to, uh, to get better at security? I suspect that every time I get asked this question, I give a different answer based on, on what's most on my mind at the time. But this time, I think I'll say, Take a look at, write some C code, imagine what sort of assembly code is going to be generated, then take a look to see what assembly code actually gets generated, and then when your expectation doesn't match the reality, you know, read the standard again and repeat until you can predict what the code you're writing actually does, because people are increasingly surprised by the semantics of the language and what the compilers are doing these days. 
Cool. Yeah, that's good advice. Well, once again, thanks for coming on the show, Robert. Well, thanks again for having me. And thanks to everybody uh, for tuning in. And I hope you join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or get involved in this community, find us at thesecuredeveloper.com or on Twitter at thesecuredev. Visit heavybit.com to find additional episodes, full transcriptions, and other great podcasts. See you next time.